Hi, welcome to this very special series of Grazy Hurst Life in the Land, where we deep dive into the lives, passions and projects of each of the seven national finalists of the 2023 AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. For the last 21 years, the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award has empowered and celebrated the leadership of women involved in Australia's rural and emerging industries, businesses and communities. Equipped with a $15,000 Westpac grant, Each of the state and territory winners are in the running for the national winner and runner-up to be announced in September, awarded an additional $20,000 and $15,000 Westpac grant, respectively. My name is Em Herbert, your host for this series. Ali Paulette speaks like her brain works at a million miles a minute. The South Australian has what seems like a million different degrees and diplomas, that has seen her work as a horse riding instructor, a vet nurse, a medical receptionist, a qualified draftswoman and designer, a wine marketer, and now the managing director at her family's Clare Valley winery, Paulette Wines. The winner of the 2023 South Australian AgriFutures Rural Women's Award is working alongside local First Nations Nadri elders to help them preserve their history and tell their stories by using beautiful videography storytelling, which will be displayed throughout the Bush Tucker Garden Ali has built next to the family cellar door and restaurant. Her ability to think outside the box is in part down to how her brain is wired, with the recent neurodiversity diagnosis giving her an aha moment that has completely changed her life. I do actually have ADHD as well, so that probably helps. Uh, my brain never shuts down. I'm always looking for um, solving problems, making things better. Um, an adage that I've always lived by is that we don't inherit this land. We borrow it from our children. So I'm always looking for ways that I can make you know, a place better than how we found it. Um, and education and setting our kids up and our future generations for success um, and capturing the things that we've done well, I think is really, really important. Um, and I've, I'm just always hungry to learn. And the more I learn, the more I know I don't know. So then it makes me hungry to learn more. So I'm in this constant, I never know enough. Um, and then I'm, and then imparting that information onto others and helping them be the best that they can be, that really makes my heart sing. So that's something that I really enjoy. Um, we do have a corporate business. We've got obviously the winery. We've got a, um, I had a restaurant um, and all those things, which um, is fabulous that I can use my station to help others um, because then I get to do that analytical marketing creative side in the business. But then I get to do the heart sing moments where, we can use our power for good and we can use um, our position to actually help others. Um, so for me, that's really important. And that's really important role modelling for me, my children, um, and also my staff as well, for them to see that this is the ethos that we operate our business with. Um, and just being a great human is a really good thing to do. Makes you help, helps you sleep at night, I guess. Um, but yeah, to make the place better than how we found it through, through using what you have. Um, we don't have lots of money. We can throw up projects. You know, we're not, we're a family owned and operated business. But what we do have is we have time, we have passion. Um, And we have a bush food garden, which has been a fabulous um, resource that I can use to help with the education piece and school tours um, and uh, local First Nations Nadjeri mob. Definitely want to come back to all of that. Um, But just quickly, (laughs) you just spoke about your ADHD and that hyper-focus can certainly be a superpower. But then there are the cons. What are some of those challenges for you and, and how do you switch off? Um, I won't say that I drink too much because that's probably not appropriate, but I do <laughs> tend to have a glass of wine at night sometimes to help me uh, calm my farm, as I, as I call it. Um, the biggest problem that I have, um, 
is that I have a really bad memory. I have a really bad short-term memory and it's become a massive problem for me. Um, I've suffered from mental health pretty much all my life, um, diagnosed, uh, finally diagnosed sort of at 15. So I am highly medicated for anxiety, depression and all those things, which is fine because I control that wheelhouse. I can, don't like being out of control, so I control it, but I don't have a really good memory. Um, and then when I had a girlfriend say to me, you know, you've got ADHD, don't you? I'm like, don't be stupid. She goes, no, you do. Listen to these podcasts. I'm like, oh, okay, and I did. She goes, does anything sound familiar? And I went, mm, yeah. And then so we did the test. And then, of course, because I'm an overachiever, I got 100%. went, ooh, maybe I should go and have that looked at. Um, so then I went down that rabbit hole. But the reason I went down that rabbit hole, because I obviously don't like psychiatrists and, you know, I've been in and out of that my whole life, is that it could improve my memory. Um, and reduce the medication that I'm on. So I went, right, and found out that it is the most misdiagnosed um, amongst middle-aged women because we're so good at coping skills and we just manage around it. And so I have lists on lists on lists. Um, so now that I've, um, now that I am medicated for ADHD as well, I've found that the 10,000 ducks that I have flying around in my head are actually flying a bit straighter. Mm. So I still have all the ideas and everything going on. They're just flying a bit straighter and I don't have that mental exhaustion that I used to have constantly from trying to remember everything and just I know that I'll forget things. So I always had reminders in my calendar, always have it in there. Um, if it's not in my calendar, it doesn't happen. So controlling that has been a really massive um, project for me personally. Mm. Um, and it is, and I've always said, if I had a memory, I'd be dangerous. Like if I could remember the names of everybody and remember all my connections. Um, but the ideas are always coming. Like I'm always having these ideas and, you know, I'm constantly sending myself emails at two and three o'clock in the morning. Cause I know I'll forget it in the morning. I, I can't go, I'll do that later. I have to send myself an email. So then when I get to work in the morning, I open up my inbox and go, oh yeah, that's right. I had that idea. That's really great. And sometimes I go, oh, I have no idea what that says. I've just jumbled up into an email. Um, so that's been, that's been my biggest hurdle with the ADHD. And then another, a really sad point is I had my son telling me through school that he had ADHD and like, no, you don't, darling. That's normal. Like that's normal behaviour. And I said, what makes you think that? He goes, well, I've done the online test and he said said all of these things about, um, you know, really finds it hard to concentrate. And, um, and I just I said, no, you don't, mate. That's normal because that's how I was. Mm. And now that I'm diagnosed, I've got that mother guilt going, oh, I should have helped him back then. I should have listened. But for me, I was like, don't be silly. That's normal behaviour. Um, so now he's going down that journey as well because it is hereditary. Um, so that's probably been the two, the memory of ADHD, um, not having one, basically, um, and then feeling like a bad mum, as you know, we all do at certain times in our life, yes. but we do our best. Exactly. You're just doing what you can with the tools and knowledge mm. that you have at that time. So I 100%. think that that's something that you you really um, you can't take on personal responsibility for but it's hard not to as a mother it's really interesting I, and I wonder if a lot of our community listening might resonate with this because mm. uh, as women perhaps we do develop excellent coping skills uh, in, in all facets of our lives and kind of get on with things so do you did, did the medication help and was that something that you would encourage other people to look into if they have um, resonate with things that you're saying a hundred percent, I would definitely um, have people look into it purely because you do just get that clarity and you can still achieve. One of the things I was really nervous about is that what if I go on it and then I'm not as creative or I'm not as energetic or inspired about projects and things? Because for me, that's, that, that's who I am. Like I'm, I want to help everybody. I want to learn. I'm like, we want to grow. Like really, I think big, I have, you know, my big, hairy, audacious goals are quite, you know, some people think they're ridiculous, but I'm like, well, if I can get to 80% of that, that's great. So mm. I was worried about that. 
Um, and it's funny, I have my 13-year-old daughter. I said, right, Jasmine, because I'm very open and honest that I'm highly medicated. I think it should be. I don't think there's anything yeah, to be normalize ashamed of that. So, yeah. And I absolutely normalise it. Put it in our conversation, especially with my kids. So my 13-year-old, I'm like, you tell me if you think this is darling mummy. Like, you let me know. And I said to Jasmine, came up to me one day, she goes, you've had a good day today, mummy. You didn't forget, like, anything. And she was like, oh, and I didn't either. And I didn't realise it. So I've sort of got my daughter checking in on me. But um, the more women I've talked to, there's been a couple of them that have gone, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I think I'm going to go and have it checked. Massive problem, though, two-year waiting list to get in to see anybody and to get medicated. It's a really long journey. It's so hard. We are so short of qualified psychiatrists because you have to go to a psychiatrist to get diagnosed and it's quite a process like it's a multiple visit one and it's very very expensive yeah. I was really really fortunate enough that I had a friend in psychology who had a friend who was a psychiatrist that actually squeezed me in and it was still a six-month wait for a squeezed in appointment um, and then I was just so blessed that he got me in and he's actually agreed to see my son for me as a one-off yeah really rare but for people to get in there is a huge need for yeah. it um, and if you can just help huge barriers and if it can just help mums or you know anyone and kids just to help get their make their ducks fly straight so they're not so exhausted at the end of the day because I find I'm still having all the ideas and I'm still driven but I'm just not as mentally exhausted at the end of the day because I'm remembering things rather than having to check all the time have I done that have I done that how do I how do I process this or trying to remember names or trying to remember something it's coming a lot more naturally now that I'm quite highly medicated for ADHD as well Um, and I've just met the most beautiful beautiful group of humans up in Cairns, um, all the other national winners, fabulous. And there's a few of us in there which we're now called Spicy Neuro or Neuro Spicy. It's the canine <laughs> new hashtag. Um, and it's quite funny how like minds sort of gather together. Um, but it's been a really interesting journey and it is quite normal and it is really misdiagnosed, especially in women. And they do mask it with, you know, oh, you've just got depression or you're just anxious. And it is because they're struggling to cope because of mm. the ADHD brain. Mm. Um, and it's something that can be fixed. So that there's a big hole there and a really big need. Mm. It's so interesting with this um, diagnosis to, I suppose, look, be reflective of your achievements over your years, like looking back at everything Mm. that you've achieved and and maybe looking at it through the lens of of your diagnosis, which is is quite a fascinating idea. I'd love to take us back to kind of the start. So you you grew up in Adelaide Hills. How did a girl from the suburbs become fascinated with horses and and how did you then uh, take that career trajectory to become an instructor? So it's quite a long journey, actually. It's quite an interesting one. So I've always loved being outside. I've never been one to sit still, obviously. Um, and I had a girlfriend that had horses and she was my best mate from um, primary school. So we didn't go to the same schools, but we we're on the same bus. So we met on the same bus um, and I was never allowed to have horses. Um, my grandma had horses. So she used to talk about her horse that would come in and stick, it, stick its head in the kitchen window when she was making scones and had such beautiful memories of their pet horse. But my girlfriend who had horses, her mum, bought her multiple horses so I always had one to ride so I was just so fortunate that I had um, a friend who she had multiple horses so I got to ride her horses all through uh, which is great because it kept all of her horses in work and I just loved it so we spent every weekend running around bareback riding swimming in dams and you know being stupid we went through Hungry Jacks once the drive through on our horses because it was funny up in Blackwood um, we just used to do all all silly things that you do as kids. You know, we used to we were very a little bit naughty, go into the um, orchards up in the Adelaide Hills and steal peaches and things like that, and then gallop off out the back before we got caught and all the naughty things that you do. But I had such a great childhood with horses and I loved connecting with that land. I loved being outside. Um, and then I come from um, my family has had business man- manufacturing and they have since um, since the war. They started at my grandfather's shed um, in bedding. 
and it was very intense. My dad was very intense with the business um, and he wanted me to come back into the business and do business management. And I'd always worked in the factory because every school holidays from year one and reception, I'd go work, work in the factory, uh, which was basically cheap babysitting. So I'd go down the quilting section and play on all the big foam rolls and the beautiful ladies in the sewing section would make me dolls clothes and I'd sit there and play with the dolls clothes. And then eventually I'd get a little bit more of a responsibility where I'd have to sit there and watch the quilting machines and, you know, make sure there was no breaks in the thing. And if it did, I had to hit a red button and go and find somebody um, up until the point where I was actually on the sewing machines doing the work and then I was in the office and then I was out on the sales team. Um, and so by like year 12, I was actually working in the office um, at the factory, taking orders and doing phone calls and actually getting out there um, and doing that. And Dad's like, I want you to do business. I will buy you your own horse. I will buy you whatever you want if you do business and come back and work in the business. And a typical me have gone, nope, get stuffed. I'm doing my own thing. I'm not having a bar of this. this I'm going to go and do my own thing. So I bought my own horse and I went out to Roseworthy so I could do um, business management. So horse husbandry, business management. So it's basically ag business in horse husbandry, um, which I loved because I got to move away from home do my own thing, have my own identity. Um, I had my horses um, and I was still studying because I was still hungry to learn. I didn't, I wasn't one for a gap year. I sort of Roseworthy was my gap year because I got mm. to take my horses, go live off campus um, and studying. I've always been able to to study. I'm a crammer obviously because I have no memory. So I'll learn everything the night before an exam. And then two weeks later, I would have forgotten everything. So <laughs> it was an interesting journey. But then I met my husband at Roseworthy, at the Roseworthy Tavern. So romantic. It was his 21st birthday. So I met him there and then we spoke basically every day since then. And um, as the story goes, he that was his last year and my first year. He, we went off. He came back to Claire working. Um, after I finished, I went to Victoria to work at the Australian Equestrian Academy. I was over there um, running their riding schools, helping in their breeding program, uh, which is amazing, beautiful, big, warm blood horses. Um, but then my husband came over, he proposed. So I'm like, oh, okay. So then ended up going back to Claire. It's like, there's not a big horse industry. How old in the were Clare you Valley. So at the time? I was 18. 18. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, so I was the youngest one enrolled at Adelaide Uni, so I was quite young. Um, I was only 16. I turned 17 in my first year at uni. Um, so I was sort of quite young, but I said, right, we'll have a long engagement, though, because I am young and I, you know, I don't want to jump into things, so, you know, we'll have a <laughs> three-year engagement. But after two and a half years, we got married. Um, and, you know, we're, oh, gosh, what are we now? So 24 years married this year, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and loving every minute of it. But when I came back to Claire, all I knew was how to basically teaching. So I just started up my own business. I had 13 kids I'd teach every week. I'd actually pick them up from school, take them home because their parents were working, take them home. So I would do that whole horsemanship from, you know, the whole paddock to riding to putting your horse away, making sure you're looking after your horse. It wasn't just rock up mounted. It was like it was that whole how do you look after your horse, have you done, is your paddock clean, are your troughs clean, get on your horse, that whole um, horse wellmanship as well through that which was great um, and great great reach and then ended up uh, got called uh, the vet needed a hand with someone who could handle large animals so then I went and helped at the vet and then went into that scope and well I may as well be qualified there too so I did my vet nursing traveled around doing um, AI artificial insemination with sheep um, around uh, northern New South Wales and Victoria and up you know north of Broken Hill absolutely loved doing that um, I've done lots of lots of jobs. It's probably quite long-winded, but always loved horses along that. Always, I was always teaching in that space. Yeah, and then I was always working at the winery as well, helping in the cellar door. So I always had a sort of push in helping the family business at the same time. Had my own drafting business for a while as well. So I went, mm, do I go full into the winery? Don't know if I can do that. But then I loved that graphic and design side. So then had my own drafting business for a few years. So I got qualified in that space as well and ended up doing, after a lot of jobs in between all of those, it was those two full-time businesses running, helping at the winery and then my drafting business that I had 
that moment as a mum where I've got my four-year-old son crying into his wheat bix at 6.30 in the morning saying, mummy, I'm just so tired. I'm just so tired because the poor things, I'd had them dropped at daycare when I opened at 7 o'clock. I would pick them up at 6 o'clock at night and then I would work to the night. I'd be trying to do stuff with the winery during the day and then I was doing my drafting um, and my plans at night time and it was just, it was too much. So something had to give. So um, that was the catalyst to shut down my business and go full on into the winery, um, which by then I was ready to come back into the business. I had tried to come back in before, but headbutted with my father-in-law a little bit, who I love dearly, but I'm very strong-minded and wanted to do change. I wanted to see change. I wanted to see, you know, capturing the database, capturing the customers and how do we utilise this and uh, wasn't ready for that then, but this time it was. So about 2010, I sort of ended up full-time back into the business. That was after my daughter. I was a bit before then, but after my daughter um, was born in 2009, I came back in full-time and away we went and I um, yeah, got some grant funding, built a bush food garden, uh, got some more grant funding when Matt's parents went away, built a restaurant. I'm going to stop you there because we're going to come back to all of that, but I want to um, draw you back because I think there's so many rich bits in, in this story. Um, for you, coming back, coming into a family business is is challenging and I wanted to chat to you about how you navigated that you said that you butted heads because you came you know brimming with innovation and ideas and obviously mm. that's how yeah. you work so uh, how was that navigating that coming into a family business with different ideas and and then uh butting heads but not letting that define your relationship with your father-in-law well when I first sort of came back in in a more structured role where I was um, saying we need to capture this data, we need to get everyone's um, phone number and email address um, so we can contact them. It was sort of changing the way that we did things and changing systems and marketing wasn't something that we ever did or spent money on, whereas for me I had a marketing background with um, the business management and marketing I did at uni. For me I'm like we're not capturing this information, we're not doing it. So I was trying to come back in, I said, you know, we need to fix the cellar door, we need to, you know, fix the experience but it was like well we've never done it like that before we're not going to spend any money doing it and the biggest problem that I had is like well we need to spend a little bit of money to make more money Mm. Um, but at that stage I felt like I didn't have the respect in the industry or I was just this young girl what the hell would I know these guys have been doing it for so long a really strongly male-dominated industry as well which was a really big hurdle um, so to have respect in an industry which is so heavily male-dominated, it's a lot better now. There's a lot more key women around which are really making waves, which is fantastic over the last five, six years. Um, so that's where I had to go, I'm going to have to pull back. And I had that red flag moment in tears, you know, as you do as a young mum in tears going, if I don't pull back now, I'm going to have serious resentment towards my in-laws. Mm. And it's not from any fault of theirs because that's just how they are, but I'm I'm a whirlwind and I'm a lot of energy and I have all these ideas. I'm like, I can see how this can be so much better, but getting them to engage and embrace the ideas and to have confidence in me to go, all right, well, let's, let's give her a go. Like I wasn't, I was really hitting walls. And that's where I said to my husband, I said, I, I have to step out. I can't work in the business because I'm going to have resentment. And I've got a family history as well where siblings have had resentment and things. I'm like, I don't want that to be us. I love my in-laws. They're the most beautiful people. I had to pull myself back. And it was a check for me to say I needed to control myself because I was I was the change it was me they hadn't done anything different there was it was me forcing change onto other people that was going to cause this resentment so I had to have that moment of going just step back step out of this it is not the time and that's mm. where I went well I need to do something I'm going to go back and study I love draft I love going in and helping people problem solve so they have beautiful old homes and um 
I'd go in there and help them redesign their homes and then I sort of made that a business and then got qualified and then did the council approvals and built that all um, went down that avenue, which was fantastic. And then after running my own business, I guess, and and having my family see, my in-laws and that seeing what I could do um, in running that business and how I could grow it and how it was this really successful business um, and then coming back in little bit by little bit, um, they started to let go and let me do a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, we got some awards. Um, we grew foot traffic. We are able to market back out, which then we were getting mail orders and that sort of stuff, so having the website done. So slowly by slowly, um, little bits. So I came back in with a much more, I guess, constructive and strategic brain going, mm. don't be a bull at a gate. And then also that thing where I go, I need to let them be a part of the ideas and the solution rather than just telling what to do. So I really had to change my approach. So I would come in and say, look, these are the problems that we've got right now. How are we going to do this? So we would have our roundtable board meetings and I would know in my mind exactly what I wanted to do, but I needed uh, buy-in and I needed everyone to be a part of the process so that they would own it. Um, and it wasn't just me telling people what to do. So then we would come around and say, well, these are the problems. Well, these are some solutions. What do you think would be the best one? And I'd give three options. And then they go, well, that sounds like a great idea. It's like, well, great idea, Neil. I agree with you. That's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Well, why don't we try this? And yeah. so I got really good at that. Let's get buy-in from people and let's bring them along the journey for ideas and process. And then coming in with a completely different approach, then I was able to achieve a lot more. And I had buy-in and then, and then we achieved more and then we expanded and then everything else went from there. But it was just that whole I needed to step back because I was too strong and then I had to come back in and I had to change my approach so that I actually had buy-in and, um, yeah, they were becoming part of the solutions rather mm. than just being dictated to. So that was me having to internally reflect, go just woo that and reset and then come back in at a different angle. It's fabulous foresight to have, especially as a young woman and mother to understand the best way to manage those around you you know you, you definitely catch more flies with honey than vinegar and so it's really um Absolutely. interesting to hear how you manage that and I think that there's a lot of takeaways in that mm. so you came back into the fold 2010 where did the idea for the bush tucker garden come from that one came from um another, you know, you always have a problem. So we needed more foot traffic. So I was doing a lot of wine marketing seminars at that stage. You know, um, Wine Australia would do different courses, which and the winemakers up here would facilitate. So I was just hungry. Like everyone that was available, I'd go to. What gold nugget are you going to give me? What What have you got? What are you going to inspire me with? Um, and the, the basic marketing that was coming out quite early on is that you need to have a point of difference. Everyone has a cellar door. Everyone's got great wine. What's your point of difference? By default, people are lazy. You need to give them more than one experience at one time. Um, and this is really before the food and wine culinary tourism bit took off as well. So nature-based tourism was also something that was starting to um, get a little bit of traction. We had a Riesling trail. We have a Riesling trail in the Clare Valley, which attracts quite a large number of people. So you go, well, they're coming up here because they want that nature-based tourism. They want to be have that experience um, of outdoorsiness. And I love food, basically. I'm very food-driven. Food and booze is pretty much my wheelhouse, as I say to people, <laughs> food and booze. And I can, I'll, I'll just be in charge of food and booze and everything <laughs> else will be fabulous and fall into line. So it sort of started with, I need to do something different. What does nobody else have? And how can I do something that aligns with our strategic pillars, what our goals are and where I want to be in 10 to 15 years' time? So there's no point doing something for the now. It's got to be in our long-term plan. So if I'm going to invest time and money into something, it has to be something that, can grow and we can utilise and something that's different. So um, 
and I love food, obviously, kitchen gardens, um, the paddock to plate is really important to us. The sustainability story is really important to us. Um, obviously, going back to that, we leave it better than we found it, all of the land around us. So teaching kids about sustainability and um, your carbon footprint and food miles and all that sort of stuff. And then I had a lady that came into Celador, Julie Weatherhead, who has a bush food garden in New South Wales. And I said, oh, that's such a great idea. I love that. And we just got talking and like, well, why can't we do one here? We can have a sensory garden. Like we're not going to be able to create or grow enough commercially, but that would be a point of difference. It would be a beautiful asset to the cellar door. It would be another attraction. I always wanted a restaurant. You might, you know, we always said if because we've got beautiful, big, expanding views over the valley. And we always said if we had a dollar for every time someone said you should have a restaurant, we could have built it three times. Yeah. So that was always there, but it's like, no way, we can't afford it. Restaurants don't make money. It was always just a hard no. Hard no, you can't have one. So, you're like, okay. so then I'm thinking maybe one day we can just do platters. So I'm like, I'll just put that over there for now. Um, so in my mind, this um, bush food garden, no one was doing bush foods. Jock hadn't opened, Jock Zafrella hadn't opened. He hadn't really um, flagshipped bush foods in South Australia yet. That was all still to come. So it was quite early on and nobody had a bush food garden in South Australia. Nobody had one, not one that was public or that was um, listed or available for anyone to see. So we went about it. Of course, I went and got a grant, so a Tourism Development Fund grant. We got this money and then Julie came back over and helped me design it because there was nobody here to consult. And we didn't have any First Nation on country at that stage too. We had no Nadgeri on country that I could consult and say, well, how do I go about this so that I can really capture the story of our First Nations? Um, so Julie actually helped me navigate that sphere because it can be quite it can be quite political and you do need to do it respectfully. Um, so yeah. I was quite mindful of that. So I was very fortunate for her to come down and help me navigate that space and have it designed and source all of the plants as well because sourcing them was also another mm. another issue. Um, so she came down and, and we designed this beautiful garden. We planted this beautiful garden, um, put the signs up all in there and it was it was just fabulous. So, yeah, so it came out of a need to basically sell more wine. That's our core business. I need to sell more wine. How do you do that? You need more foot traffic. How do I get more foot traffic? We need an attraction that nobody else has. Um, and then it had to be in line with what I wanted to do and what our future goals were. Uh, and then that's how the, the bush food garden came to be. And it's just gone gangbusters since then. It had had so much attraction. And the biggest, my most favourite piece of it is the schools and schools kids th that are really interested and it's a sensory garden, so it smell, taste, touch. You can walk around it, you can see it, you can pick up the leaves or a bit of the fruit, you can smell it, um, you can taste it. Um, and now that we have a hatted restaurant, they can actually come in and dine and actually eat prepared foods with the bush foods from our garden and also sourced locally. So it's yeah. Um, yeah, pretty exciting. It's so cool to see how they all seamlessly are kind of interwoven. But it wasn't always like a success from the start, was it? So you transformed this half no. acre of bare dirt next to the cellar door and you planted more yep. than a 1,000 plants into this mm -hmm. um, with beautiful signage and all of that sort of thing. And then what happened? Yeah, half died. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it literally was a, a bare paddock. We had some beautiful big gum trees like to two big gum trees either side um, and we, there were some sucklings that were coming up so we let them grow so we sort of planted around some of the sucklings thinking they'll be big gum trees which they are beautiful but um, it was a real learning curve because there hasn't been another one in South Australia you don't know what's going to grow and what's not so we were sourcing plants from all around Australia so we had a crack at some tropical ones some beautiful native gingers which I really really wanted to grow um, and we planted them under the, the big gum trees and we tried to make a little microclimate space. They just never grew. Um, I think my lily pillies, um, they were the best. They grew massively. They were fabulous. Uh, and then they they died a few years later, but we've managed to correct that one. They're good. 
um, my myrtles, my lemon myrtles have been the same size for 10 years. So we're like, only pick one leaf kids. Don't take too many. Just take <laughs> one leaf from those. Just It's purely um, purely a sensory garden ornamental. We're not harvesting these ones. Um, and then things like warrigal greens just go gangbusters and grow everywhere. So we make all the kids eat the warrigal greens, which is the bush spinach, which is pretty funny because they eat it before I tell them it's spinach. Um, I think that's funny. Um, and obviously salt bush is another great one, which we deep fry. So it's like salty chips. It's delicious. It's such a great snack um, and it surprises all the kids. They love that. I always say it's really easy to take a school group around when you're holding snacks. And it's like you have them engaged, they're listening. And I'm like, it may be because they're following me with the snacks, but I like to think it's because they're engaged listening to what I'm talking about, um, which is a lot of fun. But, yeah, a lot did die, half did die um, because it's so exposed. We're frost. Really, yeah. Yeah, we had frosts and then we had really dry heat. So keeping water up to it as well. Um, the most beautiful thing is now it has grown. So we've got lots of different layers of canopies. So now when we're planting, they're quite protected. So we can actually protect the plants in there and they do a lot better and they thrive a lot better. So it's now ready for that real second um, plantings of different different plants. And we'll have another go at some that did die because they are more protected now. Mm. Um, and also to expand it to pick different places in the property so we can have a little walking path down the gully, um, which is more protected from frosts, and then do a little patch down there of different types of things with some signage and sort of expand it out a little bit more so it can meander around the property a bit more instead of being stuck in that one um, one spot. Mm, it's so cool. And then you you did get your restaurant. So 2015, you your in-laws went away and you applied for a grant. I know. It was a little bit funny. Um, I was a bit cheeky. So um, the Tourism and Development Fund again, um, government grant, I'm like, well, I'm just going to do the visibility on it. I know we're not allowed to have a restaurant because it will never make money. I'm like, why don't I just do the figures? I'll just, I'll do the figures on it and let's have a little look. Um, and so I did this grant. I did my business plan. I put it all out there. I thought, well, I'll put it in. So lots of late nights. I'd come back to work late at night, working until like 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, punching out this massive big dossier um, of visibility and quotes and everything else to get this up and right. And I had worked another another life. I also was um, used to run front of house at another restaurant, uh, winery restaurant. And so I've got front of house experience as well and um, on how all of that operates. So I'm, I'm well aware of all of that. And I've also had a mate who's a chef who I worked with who we've been speaking about since the early 2000s about having a restaurant up here jokingly, half jokingly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he actually was our first head chef when, when we started. So that finally came to fruition. But I, I sat back and I did this feasibility and I thought, well, I'll put it in and we'll see how we go. We'll see how we go. Anyway, so it came back and, and I got the garage and I went, ooh. Um, so when Matt's parents came back, I said, just, just to let you know, uh, we've got all this money to build a restaurant. So the whole excuse about we can't afford it, it won't be viable. So, well, the government's backing us. They like my visibility. And I did it very skinny, like on a very, you know, worst case scenario figures just to be really make sure that it's going to be viable expense. And I said, and they've given us the money, so we've sort of got the money now, so we sort of have to do it. Um, can't give it back, otherwise we might not get a grant again. So they're like, oh, okay. So we um, away we went and we we built this restaurant. It was really exciting. Um, so we had this kitchen. I'm like, if I can get 15 people a day, that would be great. That was what I worked on, just 15 people a day that would come for lunch or a platter. They would enjoy the wine, enjoy the experience. The longer people are in your cellar door, the more chance of buying. Um, and then once they've got their wallet out, it's easy to add to that. So they're paying for lunch, so it's easy to add that bottle in that bottle. So that's basic one-on-one marketing, how I how I operate, um, and it was working really well. So before I knew it, we're now a 90-seat restaurant. We've had to blow out and build a whole other kitchen with a call room on it. Um, my beautiful restaurant manager was quite funny at the start. She kept having to steal the dining chairs from Neil and Ali's house because she couldn't say no to people. 
So every weekend we were going up stealing the dining chairs and then we ended up having this bit of an eclectic mix. She goes, oh, I just need to fill in at just another table of 10. We can fit them in. So she would go and steal the chairs from up there and we'll get some more trestle tables and set it in. So like, I think we just need to go and buy some more chairs and tables because it was just getting a bit ridiculous. Um, so it has grown. We're really fortunate. And we've had a fantastic crew from the start. So uh, my beautiful cellar door manager um, and restaurant manager, We've had her from the start. So even when we were building, um, she was here just helping pack wine and do stuff. So we had her input in the processes. And then our, our head chef at the time also, he started six months earlier. So he helped with the design and setup. He's no longer our head chef. Uh, he didn't want to leave though because he loved the culture. He just didn't want to be a chef anymore. Um, so he works in our vineyard now. So he's a vineyard and cellar hand. Um, so we're, we're really blessed that we've got such a great group of people that have taken my journey and my passion and my story um, and they just deliver it every day. So mm. I'm very fortunate. And what has the percentage been, because you're a numbers gal, um, in terms of foot traffic from the bush garden and then the cellar door? I mean, what sort of percentage are we looking at? It's very combined and it is a little bit hard. Um, I actually did the figures the other day when I had to do my pitch for nationals, which was a whole process, but it was very exciting. But um, over the years, it's been over um, 60 bespoke tours that we've done through there. So most people that will come through the garden are coming for lunch. So we'll get that whole experience through. But just uh, just with the garden, there's been about 60 bespoke tours over the last, and that depends if it's like little kids from Watervale Primary School or whether it's the year 12s. We've got some coming tomorrow from Horizon. So it's their major project with our home ec. So they will come and do the tour, learn about the bush food. So we've actually got a, a boot washing station at the entrance which was part of the Wine and Wilderness Trail, do a walk around the valley as well, and they come up and finish through our garden. So we've got this beautiful boot washing station. So we actually did some maths and said, on all of those figures, that's about a 1,000 boots that have had to go through that boot washing station, which is really cool because that also highlights not just the um, biosecurity in the garden but also the vineyard. So it connects in the vineyard story and that whole yeah biosecurity and stuff as well. So we get to connect in a lot of different areas into the into the one journey for people. Yeah, and then combining that with the beautiful family legacy that is mm. Paulette's. I mean, what what was this, the back history for context for the winery? So Neil and Alison were over in the Hunter Valley. Um, so Neil was very corporate. So my father-in-law was corporate. He actually worked for Rosemount or known as Penfolds. So he used to make Grange back in the day and he was in that really corporate space and he used to laugh because the Grange that they used to make was this thing was like 10, 15 bucks a bottle. He used to give it away to his mates, you know, for barbecues and it was just a great great quaffing red and it was great before it was all um, famous but he didn't really like the corporate world so much and he always wanted to do his own thing so he traveled around and um, there was one of the winemakers out there was saying they always highlighted that the reason from Clare Valley was exceptional so they always sourced Clare Valley Riesling so that made him go and look uh, look to the Clare Valley and they came over here and they saw this big bare paddock and hill um, and he's like, this is where I'm going to build my winery. He's very much a vision man and he wanted to create a dynasty. He wanted a legacy of like generational family. And so they came to Clare really hard. As soon as they came to Clare, they moved to Clare. Ash Wednesday came through, burnt most stuff down, burnt vineyards. Um, we're still holes in the little cottage down the bottom of the hill um, where the fire came through the roof. And that was just horrific. Um, my husband was only quite little then. So they had to evacuate to Farrell Flat. Like it was quite obviously traumatic as it was for most people around, around the country, but um, regionally up here. So they had a really rough start to it and Neil was working for other wineries to obviously pay, pay the bills while he was doing his own thing. And so it started in the shed down the bottom of the hill and Alison went from her beautiful nursing career, which she loved. She's down tools and just became a, a mum, um, but she did the cellar door 
and the books. So she did sell it all seven days a week for, gosh, nearly what we're saying. We did the maths the other day, nearly over 20 years. She was doing seven days a week to sell it all. She just, before she got somebody else in to help her, but it was in the shed. So it wasn't until 91 that they actually got to move up to the top of the hill in the cellar door. And then we've obviously renovated it since then. So, yeah, so coming from that corporate world and wanting to create that family dynasty, and he just loves loves Riesling. It's Riesling country. It's beautiful here in our Polish Hill River area. You're starting to see the view now. It's starting to pop behind me. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the the, fam- the short version of the family history of how we ended up in Clare. And then you've um, since had some amazing accolades. What were some of those? Probably the biggest one is when we got best Riesling in the world. That was one of those experiences which were quite surreal. So that was at the um, Canberra International Riesling Challenge, and that was in 2015. We got the call up to say, uh, you need to send some wine over, um, which means you've got a gold medal. So they need your wine. And then we get a call the next day. You better make that a couple of cases. I'm like, oh, we've got a couple of golds. And then the next phone call was, you better buy a ticket. And you're like, okay, we're going to get a ticket. So Neil and Alison flew over there. So it got four four gold trophies and then got best raising in the world, which wow. was just such a huge accolade because Neil's he's such a beautiful winemaker. He's just got such elegance and finesse with how he makes his wine. And it's really showcasing the quality of the fruit and the land and just don't stuff it up in the winery, basically produce the most amazing, beautiful fruit you can. Don't stuff it up. Make it beautiful bottle it and away you go so it really does tell that um so the wines all of the wines have a real sense of um, varietal distinction and place so you know it's a polish hill you know it's a riesling um and it just and it ages so beautifully so that was probably one of the biggest ones and there's been lots of other golds uh internationally like over in the uk as well even with our cabernet we've done well over there but the rieslings have always been our flagship um, and always won so many accolades and last year our rosé just got gold after gold after all of the things and trophies so a beautiful sangiovese rosé and then the restaurant. So we've been acknowledged at the um, the Great Wine Capitals of the World uh, Innovation and Tourism Awards for, and also Tourism and Marketing. A couple of years in a row, we've won awards for the whole um, connecting in the restaurant and food and wine culinary experience, which I'm now working with local Nadgeri. We're really engaging with that cultural too. So it'll be food, you know, um, food, wines, plus cultural. So not culinary, but cultural as well, experience to connect that whole you know, history paddock to plate all the way through. So really exciting on all the projects we have on the run at the moment. Yeah, it's absolutely a beautiful story that you're telling. And I'd love to now touch base on that First Nations history that you're really trying to protect and, and preserve. So tell me a little bit about the project that you won the 2023 uh, South Australian winner for the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. And, and what does that project encompass? As I said, like when we first planted the garden, um, it's now quite tired. So those signs are getting tired and everything else. So the black and white of the project is basically to upgrade the garden. So more plants, more variety and better signage. A big, big piece of the project is connecting in with our Nadgeri to actually help help them tell their story, that we can capture it and then tell that story through the garden with some beautiful videography, which will be accessible on QR codes throughout the garden. So people will be able to do a self-guided tour basically and scan the QR code and then they'll have some beautiful videography that will come up um, telling the history and sense of place. We've engaged with local uh, Nadgeri artist Elian Adam Warrior who are doing a beautiful mural at the entrance, which I'm so excited about because they're not just it's not just a historical piece on the land. They're connecting in the importance of the land for us. So for us, the land gives us beautiful to us so we've got these beautiful slaty minerally soils we've got we um don't irrigate down the bottom here so it's all groundwater so this groundwater and this beautiful soil as is what's going into our beautiful product that we're exporting around the world so there's that history and sense of place the nadgeri story and then she's integrating the paulette story 
with our journey on the land and how we look after the land and with sustainability and with um, you know sustainability wine growing Australia we're getting formally accredited as well uh, which is really important to us so she's capturing this story of um, the Nadri First Nation plus Paulettes in this beautiful mural that's going to be on slate in the garden to tell that story and then we're also building a big yarning circle which is just a big round basically outdoor classroom which is going to be made of stone and timber it's going to be about I always tell people it's going to be 30 kids bums big so 30 kids mm-hmm. bums is how the size of it that's what it's going to be and a big fire pit in the middle for for cooking so at the moment we do the tours through the garden and then we come back into cellar door onto the veranda and chef will go through lots of other different ingredients as well and how we use them but if we can have that classroom out in the garden um, and actually have cook over an open fire out there I think we'll just really cement that experience and that memory for those kids mm. um, so that's really important and it also creates a resource for our First Nations and Adri to utilize that for their tours so they do do tours around um, they're starting to to do a few more but to create a resource that they can then use that garden to help tell their story and then they can also commercialise on that. They can charge for those tours and put money back into their mob. And for me, helping them create a resource that then they can make money with is really important for the sustainability of their mob. Really important for them to be able to capture their story and tell it. So to give them a resource that they can immediately use, um, it's going to help them generate more money for the projects that they want to do. So that's that's really important mm, for me. Very- so that was sort of the first part. Yeah. It's very cool and it's such a great utilisation of the $15,000 Westpac grant in in that like very tangible parts of your business and and how you're going to expand on Mm. that in a very community-driven and meaningful way. But you are not content on just keeping the Paulette story local. Tell me about your vision to take it global and what does that look like? Um, Well, it's quite exciting. People do look at me like, how are you going to take it global? I'm like, well, and again, like very grateful for this Westpac grant and AgriFutures. We've been so, I'm so blessed to have actually had them validate, you know, my project by um, choosing me as a winner. It really does give me the energy to go forward knowing that, yeah, this does mean something and this is important. So very grateful to Westpac um, and AgriFutures for that. So going global is basically packaging up the garden and the story and what we do. So we already through COVID, uh, do these virtual um, digital degustations. So we have videography on an iPad, wireless headphones, and then people del- we deliver a six-course meal matched with wine. And then on the screen, they've got the winemaker, the chef, and my husband as an owner talking about the food, the wine, um, and that whole connection. So like, we can take these virtual degustations, use that technology and use that process and go, right, why don't we capture the garden story Um, And we can ship that out with some dried ingredients, some recipe cards and some structured content. And then we can ship that around. And there's three different levels of it. We can do it for a classroom, which I'm really excited about. So we can actually ship this to a classroom anywhere in the world. I've got friends in Italy that are really excited about this. And they're they're only young. So we're talking primary school age. But they were really fascinated to learn about, you know, we have the oldest Indigenous culture um, that there is, you know, 60,000 years old. And that's fascinating to them. And to have some videography and some stories and then send some interesting dried bush ingredients up there for them to taste with some recipe cards. They can go and make a little salt bush damper in their homemade classes scones um, and then we can make a little kwandong jam um, and we can send it all over dry for them to then rehydrate and, and make um, into recipes. And then they've got the videography on the story. They've got my head chef cooking it with them so they can have these little components or little one lesson 
little sections where they can learn a little bit about the Australian culture. Um, and I'm thinking I could do at least five different versions in my head quite easily on, you know, a different piece of story of Nadri. Just another little story on, you know, connecting in with with the water and the salt bush in this story. And then we can do one about the Kwandong and the jams. And then so we have their Dreamtime stories on how they utilise those bush foods um, and then have the recipe, then have the fun hands-on bit and even seeds to plant in the garden over there because that's another thing for Nadri. They want to take their story globally and say, well, how do we do this? And the other avenue is where I package it up with a six-pack of wine and we do virtual dinner parties so people can have the recipes and the dried ingredients and marinades and then the wine. So they'll have like a um, a Portuguese-style mixed rub, but it's made with native ingredients. So all they need to do is go and get their protein of choice, cook that one up, and then they'll have the videography and why those flavours match so well with our Cab Merlot that they're going to have. Um, and then again, they have got beautiful videography at the TV at the end of their dinner party table, and they can really experience that um, culture in their living room in, or in their dining room anywhere around the world. And and to the point we could even zoom our head chef in for you know he's going to come in and actually do a Q and A at the end and do questions. And you know technology is so good now; it's so easy to do. In my mind, it's so simple to create these just beautiful bespoke boxes. Um, depending if it's a primary school or a high school, obviously you'll you'll cater it to suit, or whether it's a dinner party. And we work with these tasting Australias um, or our Australian for Meals through Wine Australia, where we go and we're showcasing Australia. What's Australia's point of difference? We're clean, we're green, we have 60,000 60, years worth of culture. Here's some dried ingredients that we can put onto a ducker that goes with the olive oil and bread through the tasting. So, you know, instead of just having cheese and crackers, they can have something genuinely Australian to really cement home Australia's point of difference and why we are so fabulous. So, it's so exciting how we can. And there are so many options and I've got so many different versions, obviously, <laughs> in my head on how we can do this. I just love it. I think it's such a fun idea and I would love to go to a dinner party myself with something like this. It's just, it is such a point of difference. And your enthusiasm <laughs> just like bounds through the screen talking to you. It's just wonderful. The passion is very um, contagious and infectious, which is just a fabulous, <laughs> vibrant thing to, to be bringing. So oh, thank you. Thank you so thank much, you. Ali. It's been fabulous. And, and I can see how all of your ducks are flying straight. Uh, you, you're going to dominate the world. <laughs> a lot of ducks up there. <laughs> thank you so much, Ali, for your time today. It's been such a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. I love how what can be conceived as a challenge for one person is a superpower for others. Ali's hyper-focus and nimble, multi-hyphenated perspective means she can, and does, see opportunities and run with them. It's an energy that makes what I fit into a day seem rather feeble. I would so love a Paulette's degustation dinner party. Can't hurt to pair it with a world-class Riesling either. Give our podcast some love by subscribing, rating, and reviewing. And if you'd like more stories like this one, check out the Grazy Her magazine. With thick matte paper, stunning photography, and truly diverse and inspiring stories, it's a read to be savoured. You can buy it at your local news agents or online, or consider subscribing and supporting independent, female-founded, and run rural media. Until next time, keep well. My name is Em Herbert and this is a Grazy Her podcast. Mm-hmm.